0: Turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Philippians. We'll be looking at chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Philippians chapter 1, verse 8 through 11. Hear with me the reading of God's word. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Thus far is the reading of God's Word. Last week we looked at verses 3-7 through where Paul opened by telling the saints in Philippi why or what caused him to pray unceasingly with joy? And if you recall, he said that what, he brought, what brought him delight was their partnership in the gospel, in his certainty that they were being preserved until the end, and that they were partakers with Paul in grace, in both his imprisonment and in his defense and confirmation of the gospel. And we said that he told them these things for the reason that he wanted them to continue in them as Paul's imprisonment and these saints' struggles with the Judaizers in Philippi was something that had an effect that brought them closer together. There was closeness through adversity, closeness through struggle as they were dealing with similar circumstances, as they shared in the partnership of furthering the cause of the gospel. They shared in it so much so that Paul would say that the saints in Philippi even sent him money when no one else would. And in these next four verses, now Paul is going to tell the saints what his prayer is and why he prays. Or what is the purpose? What is the ends for his prayer? Yet before doing that, he tells the saints of the great affection he has for them in Christ Jesus. In verse 8, once again he says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul, out of his great love for these saints wants them to take to heart what he's saying. And so in order to do that, he begins by telling them of the great affection he has for them so that they take what he's saying seriously, that they heed his instruction, that they don't take it lightly. For example, we've probably all done similar things. If you've you've ever had to have a real hard conversation with someone, perhaps a, a spouse or a son or a daughter or a brother or sister, And so you sit them down to have this conversation. But before you start, you preface it with telling them how much you love and care for them so that they know the reason behind you're saying what it is you're saying. You're saying it because you have great love and affection for them and you, you desire that they would heed what it is you're saying because you have their best interest at heart. And so Paul is saying here, the God who knows the hearts of all men knows how deeply I care for you. He's saying, God knows my heart, and I want to express to you what is in my heart. And so in referencing God's name, when Paul says, God is my witness, he's telling these saints they can know for certain that what he is saying about what's in his heart for them is true. Because to invoke the name of God and speak falsely would be grave sin. And so what is it that Paul feels towards these saints? Well, he says he yearns for them with the affection of Christ. Which is to say that Paul longs after these saints with a holy affection. Not a cardinal, not a worldly, not a natural affection. But he strongly desires to see them once again. He strongly desires their spiritual growth. Some people might long after others for selfish gain. Some people might long after others for impure, uh, for impure sinful reasons. But Paul's yearning for the saints are for holy, righteous, and good reasons. We see later in verse 25 of this chapter where Paul's talking about how it would be better for him to depart and be with the Lord. But he says, For you it's more necessary that I stay. And after saying that, he says this, Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith so that in me you might have ample cause to glory in Christ because of my coming to you again. Paul's prayer for them is for their benefit, not Paul's. There is no selfish gain. There is no self-interest here that Paul is seeking. Rather, he is seeking their spiritual benefit. Their spiritual benefit is the catalyst behind... Him desiring to see them again. And was this not true with Christ? Was this not the case with Christ? The Son of God in eternal glory came down, took upon Himself the form of a servant, not for His own benefit, but for ours. What was the end cause of Christ's coming? To save sinners. Not upright man, but fallen man. One who would not be reconciled to the Father, but apart from Christ. What does Paul say in Romans 5, verses 6-8? through He affirms this by saying, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows His love for us, that while yet we were sinners, He died for us. St. Augustine said something similar. He said, There was no coming of Christ the Lord, except to save sinners, remove diseases, remove wounds. Neither is there cause for medicine. Christ's coming was for our benefit, not His own. It was for our justification and for our sanctification. And so Paul, imitating his Savior, likewise seeks our spiritual benefit. He wants us to progress in the faith. He wants us to be sanctified daily and that we might enjoy all the spiritual benefits of Christ and so what is it that Paul yearned for them in prayer well his prayer was that their love would abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment here then lies our first point this morning the progress of the saints which is what Paul tells them he prays for and our second point then will be the purpose or the ends for Paul's prayer which Paul says is for God's glory So, the progress of the saints and the purpose, God's glory. So, in what way does Paul say he desires them to progress? Well, he says first in love. Why love? Why does Paul first say love? Because love is the driving force which directs each person's desire to do what they consider good. Love is the driving force which directs each person's desire to do what each person considers to be good. Which is to say, love directs what we do. Love directs what we do. You see, even the, even the unbeliever is motivated by love. When they do things that are evil, they don't think they're doing evil, they think they're doing good. When the unmarried uh, boyfriend and girlfriend move in together and act as if they're married, they don't think they're doing anything wrong, they think they're doing something good hey, we love each other, we want to be in an exclusive relationship, let's move in together. Their desire to act in one way as opposed to another way is because it flows out of what they love. They love themselves. They love what brings them pleasure. And so they live in such a way as to satisfy those yearnings and those desires which flow out of what they love. Their love, though, springs forth from their natural and fallen state. This love is antithetical to the love of God because they love the world and they love the things of the world. What is it that John says? First John chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. You see, they have a carnal, a natural, a worldly love and the, the love of the world and the things of the world is what drives them. But from the believer, we have a love that is born out of true faith. This is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, 1.5. The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Love in its truest sense is the result of true faith. And so it is the love of God and not love of this world that is the source of the Christian life. It is love of God that drives Christians. This is what God calls us to. And I'll provide just a couple examples to buffer this point. What is it that the Jews were to recite day and night? The Shema. Deuteronomy 6, chapter 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. God's chosen nation was to love God with their entire being. And this is no different from what God expects of His new covenant people. Jesus says this very same thing in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36-38. When asked, Teacher, what is the great commandment of the law? What does Jesus reply? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, And with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So, each of you here, who do you love? Who do you love? Do you love the world or do you love God? Because you can't love them both. For the one that you love is the one that you will follow after, and it is the one that you will desire to please. And the love of this world and the love of God are diametrically opposed to one another, they stand opposed to one another. This is why so many people we see who might claim the name of Christ, yet when topics come up about Christ, they might abandon him so quickly when the when the topic of sin arises or maybe the inerrancy of Scripture or uh, God's justice. When these discussions come up, th- these people who would claim the name of Christ take the side of the world. They say, well, we can't really call that sin. That was for people so long ago. Or we can't really know what the Bible says because it's been... Translated so much, written by men. Uh, God would never really send anyone to hell. Oh, my friends are, I have Mormon and Muslim friends and their God is every bit as is, 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 uh, equal to our God. right? How many believers would say something like that? Too many. That's for sure. And so they demonstrate that in fact they love this world and not God. Because they're seeking the love and acceptance of this world as opposed to the love and acceptance of God. They desire to fit in with this world and they're willing to deny God for it. Showing themselves lovers of this world, not lovers of God, not having true faith. You see, the Apostle Paul could have easily dialed back the message. He could have dialed back the message so as to not be thrown in jail, so as to not be uh, quarreling with the Judaizers. He could have done all of this, but he refused because he loved God and not the world. He was willing to take a stand for the truth to not fit in, to not be accepted? Would you sacrifice your earthly life? Would you sacrifice your earthly relationships, your earthly enjoyments for the love of God? I'm sure we all say we would, but would you? And if you are a believer, you ought to be daily going to the God of love for love, desiring that your love may abound not only for God but for one another. John, in 1 John again, chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, says this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. You say, how can I progress in love? Go to the God of love. You see, we can progress, and our love can diminish, because we lack appropriate love. But God doesn't just love. God is love. His love cannot grow. His love cannot diminish. He is the very source of love. He is the spring of love. He is the fountain of love. And so we must go to Him who gives generously so that our love may abound more and more. Yet what else forms the content of Paul's prayer? What other progress does Paul want them to make? Well, he says that he prays that their love would abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. You see, the apostle doesn't just say, I want you to grow in love, period, end of sentence. He's not affirming any and all kinds of love, only love that is accompanied by knowledge. You see, these, lo- these things, love and knowledge, are interconnected. As love pursues knowledge, knowledge pursues love, and to the measure that you grow in knowledge, you ought to be growing in love. And so you must be weary of those who are only growing in knowledge and not love. Or those who only grow in, uh, appear to grow in love without knowledge. For example, if I bought a, myself a, a small plane that was damaged and I, and I fixed the plane up and I came here on Sunday morning and I said, I really love you brothers and sisters. And I want you guys to all hop in my plane with me. I'm going to fly you around. Being the good Christians that you are, inside you'd be like screaming, no, but outside you'd politely decline. Right? And why would you politely decline? Because I have no knowledge on how to fix the plane, let alone fly it. And so my love would be misdirected because it would be without knowledge. I would be actually putting your lives in danger. And so in similar vein. We must be cautious of those who attain head knowledge yet lack love or those who appear to have love apart from knowledge. For Some may just desire knowledge for the sake of knowledge to appear smart to be able to debate but not because they love God or that they love you. Or someone may appear to be showing love to others but with an ulterior motive. Perhaps they want the pat on the back. They want the recognition from man. But apart from knowledge, you cannot properly love as God has intended. Love isn't meant to be exercised apart from knowledge. This is why so many wrongly define love. This world defines love as accepting everything and everyone. Except, of course, if you're a Christian who actually practices Orthodox Christianity and believes in Orthodox Christian beliefs. Then it's okay to hate them and ridicule them and silence them, right? What hypocrisy. But this is because they do not know what true love is. They do not have the God of love. Yet as Christians, we must be growing continually in knowledge in order to understand what God has revealed to us about Himself, what God has revealed to us about ourselves, about what He desires for the church, what He wants us to participate in, what He wants us to avoid as we are being transformed continually by the renewing of our minds, and this renewing of our minds then is put on display as we exercise it in Christian love towards one another. Yet this knowledge isn't just progress and in intellectual knowledge that you learn through reading of Scripture and the Spirit applying it to us, teaching us. It is also experimental knowledge. Christians oftentimes, especially Reformed Christians, are seen as kind of cold people. right? They We only care about had knowledge, but we, we don't believe in any sort of experience. But that's not true. The Reformed Christians believed in experiential, excuse me, experimental knowledge, which means truth experience. This is what William Perkins says. He said that knowledge of God consists in experimental knowledge of Christ's death and resurrection, in effectual and lively knowledge working in us, new affections and inclinations. Yet, this experimental knowledge is not indiscriminate. Any and all experience is not biblical. We don't test the Bible according to our experience to determine the Bible's validity. Rather, we test our experience to the Bible to determine our experience's validity. Yet, as Christians, we are not just to know things, but we are also to enjoy things. We are, if we are truly Christians to enjoy and feel the love of God. So not only do you read about it in your scriptures and you know for certain that God loves you because He tells you He loves you, but because you likewise experience His love. We once all hated God. We love this world. We love the pleasures of this world. But it is no more, brothers and sisters. We now desire to serve God. We love Him. Our affections are toward Him. We love one another. And this mutual love is demonstrated in a multitude of ways. We are changed, not only in what we think intellectually, but what we feel, what we desire, what we find joy in. This is Christian experience. Look at Paul, for example. Paul hated the church. He sought its destruction. He stood there and watched as Stephen was stoned to death. He imprisoned Christians. But he was changed. Not just because he learned something new, but because he experienced something new. That which he once hated, he now loved. That which he sought to destroy, he now happily was willing to die for. And that didn't just come through knowledge. It came through a new experience. Because Paul experienced God on the Damascus Road. All of a sudden, he had new desires. He loved Christians. He loved Christ. He desired to preach the gospel because he experienced the power of the gospel. Have you? Have you experienced the power of the gospel? There are a lot of professors around this nation who would claim to be Christians in religious institutions around the world who are a lot smarter than you and I. But that doesn't make them Christian, for they have not received the benefits of the Lord's resurrection. Their knowledge doesn't lead to anything, it doesn't have life. If you are a Christian, you know that you are His. If you have confessed Christ as Lord. But also, we know that we are His if we have experienced His saving benefits. And we desire now that which God calls holy, righteous, and good. Yet we only experience this through faith applied to us by the Holy Spirit. So strive after knowledge, strive after greater love, and test your experience by the Scriptures to determine. If they are from God or if they are from Satan. But this is why we need discernment. This is what Paul says in verse 9. He prays for their discernment. As you grow in knowledge, the result should be discernment. You should be able to discern good from evil, truth from lies, so that you are not taken astray by a false teacher, so that you don't participate in things which God hates. This is why Paul says in verse 10, we need discernment. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is why it's so important to come to church on the Lord's Day when you're able to. To be fed by Christ each Lord's Day. To hear His Word. To learn of His will for you. To hear what it is He has called us to do and called us to avoid. It's dangerous to be an undiscerning Christian. It's dangerous to be an undiscerning Christian. You can follow after a preacher who seeks to tickle your ears to tell you those things you want to hear. You can participate in sin ignorant of God's truth. But you can be sure then there will be no growth. Your soul will be malnourished. You certainly won't be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And you will leave yourself open to being assailed by Satan. This isn't what being pure and blameless means, that Paul says. Purity meaning uncontaminated. Uncontaminated. Blameless, meaning not bringing offense, not causing harm to others. Now what Paul is stating here in verse 10 is the ideal. We are called to be free from sin, called to be free from causing others to stumble. Yet we are progressing towards this in our Christian life. This is what we are striving for, yet it will be fully realized when Christ returns. For the reality is we are far from this. But we ought to be striving daily for this end. But you cannot do it without knowledge and discernment. You can't follow after what is excellent if you are knowledgeable about what God deems as excellent. What is it that God deems as excellent? Well, chapter 4, verse 8. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This is what's excellent. This is what we are to think about, dwell upon, meditate on. Now Paul also desires, he says in verse 11, that the saints be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. And Jesus himself says this very thing in John chapter 15, verse 1 through 6. Please turn, if you will, in your Bibles, and we will look at that together. John chapter 15, verse 1 through 6. Me, what Jesus says. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit he prunes, that it may be more, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, and apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. You see, Paul isn't just calling us to the moral life. Jesus himself here is not calling us to the moral life. We cannot bear fruit apart from being united to Jesus Christ. We cannot bear fruit apart from being united to Christ. Much of the world thinks that they are good moral people. If they do good things, this is the perspective of probably many who sit in churches across the country. But the question is, are you bearing fruit for Christ or not? If you are not Perhaps it is because you are not united to Christ. If you are bearing fruit, the question is, are you progressing? Are you growing? Because what does Christ say here in John chapter 15? For those who bear fruit, they are pruned in order to bear more fruit. We are being filled with the fruit of righteousness to bear more fruit if you are Christ. And so Paul is calling on the saints not to just progress in love and knowledge In discernment, but also in fruit bearing. This is an outward mark of one being Christ, that they bear much fruit. Remember what we said earlier about love and knowledge, how they're intertwined? Well, the same is true of love and righteous living. As we said, that love is a driving force that directs each person's desire to do what is good. And if the Christian life is predicated upon the love of God, it should cause us to desire. To do what God calls good. Jesus says this very thing in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The Christian life is directed by the love of Christ. This is how you know if you belong to Christ or if you belong to the world. Do you bear fruit for Christ or do you live unto yourself? Are you progressing? in the Christian life or are you regressing or remaining stagnant? For if we love God, if we are growing in knowledge and in discernment, shouldn't righteous deeds adorn our lives? If you have been saved by that true and living faith, if you have experienced the goodness and love of God, is there ever a reason to regress in the Christian life? No. If by God's power you have been truly transformed, your aim in life is for God's glory, which is the purpose of Paul's prayer, he says here as well. Our progress, our sanctification in the Christian life is for the purpose to bring God glory. John Chrysostom, an early church father, said this, New life in man has love as its beginning and God's glory as its end. New life in man, love as its beginning, God's glory as its end. And this is our second and final point this morning. The purpose for why Paul prays all these things, ultimately, is for God's glory. We, as long as we remain upon this earth, should be promoting the glory of God. This is what Paul says at the end of verse 11 that he wants us to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is the first petition of the Lord's Prayer? our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Here it speaks to the desire we ought to have that God's name be glorified. And this prayer begins with hallowing God's name, with saying we ought to glorify God's name because everything after that is to follow with this in view, God's glory. This should help us to narrow down what it is we ought to pray for and how we ought to pray we have to ask ourselves, does this glorify God? Likewise, this ought to help us narrow down what it is we participate in this life. Does what I'm about to participate in glorify God? Is hanging out with these people? Does going to these places where sin abounds, where I might be putting myself in a, a place where I might sin, should I do this? Well, no, because it doesn't glorify God. What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3? But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness. Let there be no foolish talk, no crude joking which are out of place. Do you, brothers and sisters, engage in such things? The Christian should not be associated with such filth. Because our purpose is to promote the glory of God. And this does not promote the glory of God. So we should abhor it. Just as God does. Yet you say, okay, I know what I shouldn't be doing. What should I be doing? Well, Paul gives us many examples already in this first chapter so far. These first 11 verses. We are to be furthering the cause of the gospel. We are to be defending and confirming the gospel. We are to be growing in love. We are to be growing in knowledge and discernment. We are to be growing in purity and blamelessness. We are to be growing and being filled with the fruit of righteousness. This is what brings God glory. This is what we as Christians are to be following after. This is what we are to be making our lives about. Also, right worship glorifies God. Right worship glorifies God. We've probably all heard horror stories of those who've come from churches which maybe uh, they, they said, oh, our church was essentially just a music service with a little sermon at the end. We won't even call it a sermon, maybe a sermonette. These worship services are man-centered. They try to deliver you on experience, so that you walk away feeling like you have experienced God. But what did we say? We test our experience by Scripture to determine the validity of our experience. And we know by Scripture that this is not the worship God desires. He says His Word is to be central in worship. Our prayers are to be made in the name of the Father, by the Son, by the aid of the Spirit. Our songs are to be biblical, God-centered, not vague and worldly, lacking biblical truth. What is it that God says about His own glory? Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. The Lord is jealous for His glory. Yet He has made us joint heirs with Christ in order that we may promote His glory. Is this what you do? Is this the aim and desire you have for all that you do? Or do you do things? Do you do good works in order that you might get a pat on the back? That you might be glorified? That you might receive recognition? That's not what Paul did. Look back once more at 20, verse 25 and 26 of chapter 1. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of me coming to you again. If there is anybody who could have said glory in me on this earth, it could have been Paul. He experienced things like no other. Yet what does Paul say? He doesn't say glory in me. He says I'm coming to you so that you may glory in Christ. And our desire for God's glory should flow out of our love of God. Love should permeate the Christian life, everything we think, say, and do. Yet we cannot love God nor glorify God in every thought, word, and deed if we are apart from God. If there is no reconciliation, if we are not united to Christ, or if there's anything here that has been said that strikes at your heart, believe in Jesus Christ, that He died for sinners such as you, that He was raised from the dead, that He will return to judge the world. Repent. Turn from your sin, from your self-love, from your narcissism, from your love of this world and the things of this world. And cast yourself wholly upon the merits of Jesus Christ. And you have the promise. You will be granted faith. You will know what love is, for you will love God and you will be loved by God. And thus your desires will be to obey Him, to grow and progress in the Christian life, with the ultimate goal of glorifying God in whatever way He chooses to direct and guide your life. Please bow your heads and prayer with me. Heavenly Father, we come before You this morning and just thank You for Your holy word, Lord, that You tell us through Your prophets and apostles what it is that You desire of us, that love may abound more and more. And so, Father, we pray for this love We go to the God who is the God of love, the source of all love and we ask, Lord, that you would increase our love for one another and for you. Yet we pray, Father, that as we grow in love, you would also increase our knowledge because love apart from knowledge is dangerous. We ask, Lord, that to the degree we grow in love, we grow in knowledge. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to be discerning Christians, that we would think about that we would test that which we are uh, that we hear, that we think that we are offered to do that we would test it first is it something that God finds excellent and so should we do it or should we refrain from it and so Father we ask that you would give us that wisdom that you would give us that discerning mind and heart to only follow after those things which ultimately bring you glory and praise for you are deserving of all glory, praise, and honor. And so, Father, we ask that you would stir us, that you would aid us, and that all that we do would be with the desire, and with the end and aim of glorifying your name. And, Father, we ask this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.